Welcome to the JACCP podcast. This was entitled Leaders in Clinical Pharmacy. I'm Jerry Bauman, and I'm the editor of the Journal of the American College of Clinical Pharmacy. This is our first uh, podcast for leaders in clinical pharmacy, and I've invited uh, my friend and uh, somebody who, who probably a lot of people know, and that's Dr. Peter Velasquez, to join me today to talk about his uh, career. Uh, I've known Pete for a long time, and uh, he's an incredibly well-known figure in clinical pharmacy, but also the world of pharmacy at large. Pete received his Bachelor of Science degree and his PharmD at the Philadelphia College of Pharmacy and Sciences. I won't tell everybody what year. And then he completed a residency at Thomas Jefferson. And I think his first faculty job was at the Ohio State University. But I'm, I'm not going to go through his career. I'm going to let you I'm going to let him fill in the blanks on that. I'll tell you just a couple things. He's won numerous awards, and I'll just list a couple. Uh, he received the Russell Miller Award for research in uh, pharmacy and clinical pharmacy from the American College of Clinical Pharmacy. Uh, he received an honorary doctorate from Mercer University. And this year, excitingly, he is the recipient of the Remington Award from the American Pharmacists Association. Uh, that's about all I'm going to do to introduce Pete. I've introduced him a number of times at other events, including his retirement, and I've messed it up. So um, I'm going to let him uh, sort of go through uh, the other parts of his career. So we'll just sort of start, Pete, I think, by asking, you know, tell the listeners, you know, where you grew up, some background about you personally and how, you know, how you chose pharmacy and then I guess how you got into clinical pharmacy. Thanks, Jerry. So my parents were uh, Greek immigrants. My father had come to the United States after World War One and um, got into the restaurant business very early. He was, uh, you know, he went from dishwasher to mater d to owner over a, you know a period of time. Got married when he was forty-five years old in an arranged marriage with my mother in Greece. And growing up, we spoke Greek in the home, and uh, it spoke a little bit about why I was better in math than I was in uh, English and my uh, SAT scores. But anyway, at some point in time, I think my father was thinking that I would take over the family business when I was growing up. <clears throat> and he uh, was disappointed when I told him, you know, it was the 60s and we wanted to help mankind and make things different. And, you know, he had expanded the business from a restaurant to include a bar and a liquor store. And I didn't really see where those two were going to help mankind going forward. So I told him I expected him to be upset. He immediately turned around and said, well, you got three choices. You got medicine, law, and pharmacy. And we went down the list and he said, well, you know, you're not, I'm not sure you're going to handle all the blood and everything in medicine. So, and he said, your, your English is not as strong because you're, you know, you spoke Greek and, and all this stuff. So. And you, said, you speak read, Greek, right? I do speak Greek. Yeah. And it actually helped me in pharmacy school a great deal because I had Latin in high school and between the Greek language and the Latin language, most of the words you ran across in any of the pharmacology or the physiology or anything, we're all based on 
those two languages. So I, it really helped me out in school. Anyway, uh, he recommended pharmacy. He took me to see a friend of his who owned a pharmacy. He thought it would be a great thing, you know, to help people and what I was looking for. And then he recommended PCP because they had a great, rec- you know, a great reputation around the country. And I went and did that. And then what happened was uh, I had the five-year baccalaureate degree at the time. And the post-BS PharmD was being offered at PCP. And the uh, choices, you know, would be to maybe do a PhD in pharmacology or to do the post-bac PharmD at the time. And people were telling me at the time, the PharmD will never amount to anything. It'll be a waste of time. You're going to make a terrible decision here. Academia will never recognize it, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I was confused. And a um, graduate student at PCP was in the uh, PhD program. And she said, well, why don't you come and I'll show you my experiment and you can talk a little bit about this whole thing. So she had a CAD experiment that she had set up. It took her several hours to have the cat's paws held down. And and then we went in and there was a chymograph in those days that used to burn the results as this thing turned. So you could see the increase in heart rate or the decrease in heart rate based on the drug that was being administered. So in the middle of her explaining all this stuff, this cat starts peeing straight up in the air all over the experiment and all over her. And I said, you know what? I looked up in the air and I said, this is a sign from above that the post-bac PharmD is where I belong. (laughs) And at which point I graduated, did a residency, and then took some courses along the way and then did the PharmD in uh, 73. So you you retired, I think, in 2019 as the executive director of the Accreditation Council for uh, Pharmacy Education. Congratulations on that, by the way. And I think a lot of people know you from those latter years, perhaps, the younger people. Maybe you could fill in some of the gaps between your first faculty job and and then being the executive director of ACPE. Went something like this. I did pharmacy education for, I think, five or six years, first at Ohio State and then at PCP. And then at some point in time, you know, there was a call for PharmDs to do more education and research. And I realized I didn't have a really good research background. And if that's where they wanted me to go, I needed to find either a job or a some kind of degree that would help me. I got hired at uh, Jefferson Medical College by uh, Dr. Roger Ferguson, the late Dr. Roger Ferguson, who gave me a great shot. He made me the associate director of the Department of Clinical Pharmacology that he was in charge of and had me run the uh, clinical research unit. And I was there 11 years, eight with Dr. Ferguson and then three afterwards. But We did a whole lot of clinical research. We did ACE inhibitors, first time in man kind of stuff. Merck was funding this unit, but we could do studies, you know, with others as long as the Merck studies were being done. 
So they had enalapril and lisinopril and all those drugs coming along. And uh, we, we published a lot and we had fun. While, while I was there, I was president of the uh, ACCP. And we were getting feedback from the members of ACCP that they were getting some pushback from the companies that the FDA wouldn't allow them to have a pharmacist as a principal investigator. So I wrote the FDA and I said, we have this conflict. Could you help us clear it up? And they said, well, it's longstanding that pharmacists that are qualified can be primary investigators in either in clinical trials or in clinical pharmacology studies, as long as there was a physician along that was handling all the medical aspects of the of this trial. So that that turned out to be a big deal because a lot of people around the country would meet me at the meeting saying, thank you very much because, you know, this letter helped me jump over that hoop and be able to do the research and things of that nature. So Yeah, I mean at ACCP meetings it's still still to this day cited that that's evidence that we can do these things. I feel like I helped our discipline of clinical pharmacy be able to have that research component better understood and better utilized, which, and that people were telling me how much they benefited from the letter, you know, obviously made me feel good. At that point in time, I came to Chicago to work at the University Health System Consortium at the time, which was academic teaching hospital, you know, collaborative. The academic part is now part of a group called Visient that some people may know better than UHC, which no longer exists. But I learned a hell of a lot at UHC, even though, you know, we were trying to do a big research collaborative across hospitals and stuff like that. It didn't work out the way we all hoped it would. But I learned a hell of a lot about health systems and their finances and and all that, which then carried over to when I took the job at ACPE, there was a lot to understand about what was going on in the marketplace and what kind of education pharmacists needed. And I took the job in 99. As of the year 2000, the profession had voted to go all PharmD and that ACPE would be in charge to make sure that all the schools met that timeline of transferring to a all PharmD model. And it did. You know, all the schools made their deadlines. By the year, I think 2005, the last baccalaureate pharmacist graduated that was eligible to get licensed on the baccalaureate. Since that time, we watched as the original standards, which were pretty much heavily making people a drug information expert, And then by 2007, the board and stakeholders combined to evolve those standards, bringing in more of a patient care competencies to be able to do more than just give information, but rather help take care of patients. Well, while I was at UHC, I saw a video presentation of perhaps the best lecture I ever heard when Dr. Donald Berwick spoke on crossing the quality chasm on the problems with the U.S. healthcare system and the needed changes. He coined the uh, term triple aim, which was the need 
to improve the patient experience of care, quality, and satisfaction, to improve the health of populations, and to reduce the per capita cost of healthcare. We had this big conference in 2012. We invited, you know, all kinds of stakeholders to come and it developed the standards we have right now, 2016, which said that you basically, uh, you had to be APPE ready, meaning the last year, which was all experiential. You, you weren't going there to watch. You were going there to work and to learn and to give. And then you had to be ready at graduation you had to be practice ready to enter any field in pharmacy at the entry level. And then the third one was that you had to be team ready. So that Standards 2016 made a big emphasis, actually made interprofessional education a full standard. In my Remington talk, I called it pharmacists to know us is to love us. And I came upon that because interprofessional education, where people are learning about from and with each other, you know, the medical students, the residents, the people that would interact with us, the nurses, the more you saw what pharmacy had done for them as far as their education and what they could contribute, the more the collaboration and the model was evolving. And it was not only the health professionals who learned to love us, but the patients who knew more about what was going on and how it was going on were looking more for what was traditionally the role of the pharmacist was to advise heavily in, in the old days until the finances turned around. And I think where we are right now is trying to move from the hospital health system environment where clinical pharmacy has become the norm. I mean, it is widespread it's, you know, people have justified their jobs based on how they have helped institutional finances uh, under uh, DRGs and Medicare A. But now the transition is going to Medicare B, trying to find value-based payments out of uh, the Medicare B model rather than for service, you get paid all the time. Now you have to show how your outcomes are doing and either your outcomes mean you get paid less, the same, or more. And pharmacists are now partnering, especially in ambulatory care, trying to make that equation work where the pharmacist gets back money to help them justify their time in that collaboration with physicians in the, in the new Medicare B market. You know, you obviously had some important mentors in your life. You mentioned Dr. Ferguson. Were there others that you would say, uh, you know, sort of shaped your career? And... Yeah, from a pharmacy standpoint, Dan Hassar was uh, my faculty advisor. He was on the faculty for the first year, and he got me and I got him. Dan is uh, went on to be, he was my professor, then he was my employer. He got the Remington. John Gans was the head of the PharmD program that I got. John went on to be the executive, you know, director of or the leader of APHA and also received a Remington Award. And the dean of PCP at the time was Linwood Tice. And he also got uh, the Remington. So pr I was proud to know that about 20% of Remington medalists have come through PCP 
either as having taught there or as having graduated there. So that was something I didn't know until, you know, I was given the award. And the dean at PCP sent me this thing that uh, gave me all the names of the people who had been, had come through PCP and, and gotten the award. When I went to UHC, I was hired by Alexander Schmidt, who was a former FDA commissioner. And he again hired me to be the associate director of uh, the operation at UHC that he was in charge of. And during that time, I interacted with Dave Zills a lot because he was doing a lot of consulting with UHC. All those people had major impact on my education and growth and development and mentoring. And then the other thing I think is I learned a hell of a lot from the pioneer crowd of clinical pharmacists that all were coming out within the first five or 10 years. And after a while, we knew each other. We would go to meetings and talk to each other about what was going on and learn from each other. And Jerry, that's where I met you. And um, we were both in the cardiovascular area. And, you know, it was great to go to meetings and learn what, you know, what you were doing. And every success any one of us was having was a success for everybody. It was going forward one step at a time all together to try and prove those naysayers that we heard that what we're doing is making a big mistake. And now that has changed dramatically, but it was also a driving force for, I think, for all of us that we were, were all in on this. I think ACCP, sometimes we were putting careers on the line about whether anybody would ever view us as part of the pharmacy, you know, establishment. But we then spread out and we, uh, you know, we got involved in multiple organizations. We served ACCP. We served other organizations when it was, you know, called for and appropriate. So Bill Evans, Dennis Helling, and I were all president of ACCP in the uh, first couple years. And now we're all Remington medalists. And Mary Ann Cota Kimball was a ACCP member, and she's a Remington medalist. And I'm sure there'll be some more coming down the pike as people, you know, grow further in their career. That's what attracted me to ACCP was that sort of esprit de corps in the early days and the like-mindedness of uh, a lot of the people who I grew up to respect. So <clears throat> you've had so many accomplishments in your career, including you know, reshaping pharmacy education and clinical pharmacology of different drugs, including you know, ACE inhibitors. Are there a couple that you would say make you most proud through the past uh, years? I would note also that you have a publication that was one of the first publication to get reimbursement for pharmacy cognitive services that I know of. Well, the story you just laid out there was when I was at Ohio State, there was a program where, where they were trying to get people to do home factor eight at the time. And the reason was that, you know, Ohio State had, you know, the hemophiliacs were spread out all over the Ohio geography. And when people were coming into the hospital frequently to get, because they were bleeding again, we partnered with the hematology group and 
Bob Fudge and I, uh, Bob was a uh, pharmacist at Ohio State. I was on staff and also had a faculty appointment. And um, we got involved with a nurse and we trained the guy to, you know, this patient to mix up the factor eight and then start his own IV. And we had him do it in front of us a bunch of times. So then now we're live. Now he's at home and he's, you know, an hour and a half, two hours away from Columbus. And he calls us, he calls me at two o'clock in the morning that he's having trouble starting the IV. And I knew that this was either all or none, that we had to do something. So I called Fudge. We drove out there together. And yours truly started his IV so that he could give himself factor eight at home. And then after that, he was able to do it himself. And then we gathered all the data of how many you know, ER visits and how many hospitalizations had been saved. And Blue Cross of Ohio funded an education piece for the pharmacist to train the people to use Factor Eight and to self-administer it. And that was so an N of one study that resulted yeah. in. Uh, so yeah, I was so, I was proud that we could help somebody at that level. I, yeah. Obviously, the the correspondence with the FDA was something I'm proud of. But the other thing I'm proud of was, you know, when education system was going all PharmD, they said, we're going to have the new PharmD, that the the old PharmD was, you know, clinical jocks and they were doing all this stuff. But this one was going to be somewhere between the BS and the old PharmD. I said, well, if we're going to do this right, we're not going to have the cheap PharmD and the old PharmD. We're going to have people that can do the things that we want them to be able to do to help patients and improve our health system. What I'm proud of is the quality of the education that is now being given at the entry level is light years away from education that, Jerry, you and I got when we were in our PharmDs, even. We didn't cheapen what we had. We've actually allowed this to be have adequate person power around the country of people that have been trained. ACP spent a long time as well as, you know, in the continuing education space to make sure that the continuing education was growing in a way that would benefit baccalaureate trained people to upskill and also to have PharmDs continue their education upon graduation and stay relevant going forward and everything. We not only didn't cheapen the PharmD, but we also made continuing education less about drug company funded commercials to um, things that had clinical relevance and were needed in the, in the healthcare system. Pete, I do want to uh, thank you for all your contributions, not only in the clinical pharmacy, but to pharmacy in general. And, um, I also want to thank you for being a good friend. Like you said, we do have a lot of things in common, and we work together for many years. So thanks for joining us today, and um, I hope you enjoy your retirement. Well, I'm, uh, I'm failing retirement, my wife tells me. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, but I, COVID has allowed me to stay more involved because ACPE has asked me to help out with virtual site visits and some other things. But Jerry, I also want to say how much I appreciate our friendship. 
And even though you're a Cubs fan, it's still okay with me as a White Sox fan. <laughs> I'll go with the Sox too, particularly this year. We, uh, yeah. <laughs> and I, I'm proud of you for what you're doing with the journal and uh, your continued service to clinical pharmacy.